The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. My guest this week is a compassionate soul who is living a life of service. Sita Ramdas was the first long-term resident caregiver for Ramdas in Maui. He follows the path of bhakti, the yoga of service, and devotion to God. In this episode, we got to talk about how he first met Ram Dass, the work that he's doing now through the Sacred Community Project, his latest book, and his love of music. Sita Ram Dass's energy and his message are so calming and inspiring. I know you're going to feel better just listening to this. Thank you so much. Welcome to the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast. I'm your host, Nadia Dela Cruz, founder of the Wayne Dyer Wisdom Community. My guest today spent several years serving Ramdas on Maui. He is the director of the Sacred Community Project and the author of From and For God, a collection of writings on the spiritual path. Sita Ramdas, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be able to connect with you in this way. I know that we share a love for Ram Dass. And um, why don't we start with how did you first get connected to him? Uh-huh. Well, uh, you know, like many people, my first introduction to Ram Dass was through his book, Be Here Now, that came to me at the exact moment that I needed it. I was probably 20 at the time. Uh, you know, was experimenting heavily with psychedelics, really getting interested in the spiritual path. Uh, had a lot of enthusiasm, but not necessarily a lot of guidance or direction, right? Um, and that just developed over the years, uh, finding, right, finding myself reading more and more of his books, getting more interested, and... Um, Really, what it came down to is I was at a place in my life in my early 20s where I didn't have a lot of responsibilities. I was really on fire for God, for spiritual truth, and I knew I needed some type of direction, some guidance, some way to help deepen into that. And it just came to me one day. I realized that of all the people that I wanted to meet, various spiritual teachers. The, the person at the top of that list was Ram Dass. And a lot of the people that inspired me were no longer living, uh, but Ram Dass was. And so I just thought, why don't I just see if there's some way that I could meet him? And that, that first seed really started 
me on my path where uh, like these things tend to happen. All these synchronicities lined up uh, and I went from having zero connection at all to all of a sudden there was this pathway where I could meet him and uh, it was everything. It was everything I wanted. I was meeting my idol. It was like almost like meeting a rock star, right? It was like it was all levels but also just this really sweet, kind, loving person that had true wisdom. And in that meeting, uh, my friend said this, even though it was my idea, but I would have been too timid to say it out loud. Uh, my friend said, you know, Ramdas, we just want to do anything we can to be as close to you as possible. So if you have any work that you need done around the house, like we'll come and do it. And his response was, well, you know, I've been given this house to live in as long as I'm alive. And the property is a little bit too big for us to maintain. So we always do need help. If you happen to be on islands, there's probably something you could do. And I took that as my yes. I just knew that that's what I was going to do. And so that kind of very lukewarm maybe, uh, when we came back from our trip to Maui, I quit my job. Uh, I just set up my life in a way so I could move back to Maui. I had arranged so I was going to sleep on this guy's back porch in Paia. I paid him a hundred bucks a month in rent, basically just to use a shower and kitchen. And I, I just went for the sole purpose of being able to maybe help out at, at their house. I mean, it was not, there's nothing rational about it. Uh, and after calling a few weeks being on island, uh, Dasima finally invited me over to work in the garden. I thought I was volunteering. At the end of it, she paid me and said I could come back the next day. And then I, I thought I, in that moment, I still viscerally remember feeling like I had hit the jackpot. Oh, this is it. I can just be Ramdas's gardener. And uh, I made enough money to pay my low overhead expenses of rent and food. And uh, through that, built a relationship. And then uh, eventually they asked me to move in and um, to be one of Ramdas's caregivers there. Yeah. Wow. So how long was it, do you remember, before you moved into the house? Well, so I, I had been there working in the garden for a few months before they invited me. But uh, the, the invitation was for the future because they still had arranged, they had someone planning to come already. So at that point in time, Dasima was the main person that held everything together and was his primary caregiver but they always wanted to have a younger person there to help out and especially if anything happened and he fell uh, someone that could maybe help pick him up so they would have people come and generally they only stayed for three months sometimes six months uh, so they already had someone scheduled to come so when they invited me uh, that wasn't for six months later so i'd been on an island for nine months before i moved in and then I was the first like long-term caregiver besides Dasima, where I stayed for over two years, just there living and- Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> it was in your path. Um, yeah. I heard that Ramdas said, no one comes in front of me unless Maharaji sent them. Yeah, yeah. He said that to me the first time that I met him. Yeah, the first time I met him, he said that. And I didn't even know. Well, so actually, so in that first meeting, 
the night before I met him, I had a dream uh, on the beach where I saw two figures shape-shifting back and forth into each other's forms. It was uh, Jesus and Maharaji. And in fact, it wasn't a dream. It was right before falling asleep, but it was, I mean, it was, op my eyes were still open and I just, I, I visually saw it. And I told him that that next day and his response was so matter of fact, he just said, well, no one comes in front of me unless Maharaji sent them. And that started me on a journey of slowly realizing that uh, my path was one of Guru Kripa, right? The grace of the Guru where uh, over time we just learn that even our will, even our decision-making and our choice uh, really just arises out of a type of grace that our, our mind can't even conceive of. So what seems um, beyond reason, um, perhaps there's a reason for. Yeah. Like, so when I first moved in, I had all these questions right, for Ram Das. And over time, they started to fall away more and more. And I learned that really it was just about being with him. But one of the first questions I asked him that I really wanted to know is, I said, Ram Das, what does your practice look like now, right? This person who's at the, the end of his life, who had done a lifetime of practice, who was clearly in a state of consciousness that was very deep, uh, deeper than I, I could conceive of at that time, really. So I, I was really curious. And his response was, I just hang out with Maharaji and I love everything in the universe. And that was, that was the world that he lived in where everything was a manifestation of the Guru's grace, right? And so that's, that's how I entered into that worldview myself was just through being around him, just seeing through his being, through the pictures on the walls. It just, his faith was so deep that uh, it opened up an invitation, right, that I could, I could step into. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when I was at the house, you can still feel that presence yeah. there. And um, I was most touched to see that not only was Ramdas surrounded by people who took care of him, he was surrounded by people who loved him deeply yeah. to the very end. Yeah. Um, you know, a bond that feels deeper than family, if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, that brings me a sense of joy and peace because um, I can only imagine he had a lot of uh, challenges after the stroke and he lived with numerous challenges for the rest of his life. Um, I think that his example is astonishing the way that he loved everything yeah. and he i mean he could have had a lot of reason to not love it and be bitter about it and he continued his practice mm -hmm. that was one of my questions when i spoke to um dasima a couple months ago was you know what was his spiritual practice like and i i got basically the same answer and I think that's so interesting to think that he just communed 
with that energy and practice being part of that loving awareness. And it makes me think back to decades before where he would talk about all these different methods you can try. I think there's like recipes basically in the Mm -hmm. back of, of be here now of, you know, because he was introducing this to the West where we hadn't heard much of anything about it probably. And for, for whatever reason, I think there is a reason, but for whatever reason, he was the voice that reached so many. And, um, but he would talk about these practices that, you know, eventually they kind of need to fall away because if you get so attached to a particular practice, you might lose the essence of it. And I feel like with him, it seems like it got, it got distilled to, to that essence. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, here's a story that I like to tell that uh, I think captures that distillation and that transformation that he went through is so i'm like everyone else first became enraptured by ramdas's writings hearing ramdas speak right his teachings which he was very skilled at but then i'm there with him at the house where after the stroke his verbal abilities just weren't there Um, so it definitely wasn't about the teachings uh, although he did still teach and he still had a way to transmit, but his being though, he truly rested in that loving awareness that he talked about. So it was a palpable, it was a palpable experience being around him. And I remember one time uh, we're in the hot tub. It's me, Dasima and Ram Das and, uh, Dasima's playing. It was her iPod and she has her music playlist going and it's Jayutal and Krishna Das and, Periodically, Ramdas talks would come on, and whenever Ramdas was there, she was supposed to skip him because Ramdas didn't want to hear himself speak. Right. <laughs> so we're in the we're in the hot tub, and her playlist is going, and a Ramdas talk comes on, early '70s Ramdas, and she didn't go to skip it, and Ramdas didn't say anything, and so we just sat there, and the three of us listened to this old Ramdas talk, and maybe 10, 15 minutes have gone by, we're just silent just listening to this old Ramdas talk. And Ramdas breaks the silence and he says, he starts waving his finger and he says, that guy, he talks too much. (laughs) 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 That's pretty good. Yeah. But also, what I learned from Ramdas is that Love isn't just a state of being, which it is. It is our being. But it's also a practice itself, right? Like Ramdas both rested in love and I got to drink the fruits of being around him, but he also practiced loving, right? I mean, he he talked about sometimes at night before bed, he would systematically go through his body and and love his pain, right? There there was Mm -hmm. a practice. And what I find compelling about that is that uh, that's something that I can do now, right? I don't have to wait to achieve some state, whatever that means. I, right now I can make a, a choice and a, I can practice loving everything, right? That's, that's something that I can actually engage with. And what's interesting is that in the devotional texts of India, there's this saying that this type of love that we're talking about is both the practice and the reward. 
Meaning, once we know what the highest fruit is, right? Once we know that love is the essence of reality, it's the deepest value, it's the depth of our being. Once we know that to be true, why wait to why wait for it? Why not practice that now? Why not just make that the practice? Why practice something else so that we can get to love eventually? And that's the other piece that towards the end of Ramdas's life, I mean, he really he really modeled that love as the totality of the path. I love that. I'm writing down the practice is the reward um, because that that's such a, a beautiful um, reminder uh, that it's not about trying to get somewhere yeah. else or trying to become enlightened yeah. or trying to um, transcend the body that we can experience the love that is our ultimate yeah. truth and is really what we're yearning to get back home to. Yeah. We can experience it now um, just just by connecting to it, just by being it. Yeah. And it's, when we talk about it, something that can be right now, it's loving everything means that even the critical part of my mind even the part of my mind that like hates itself, right? The self-hatred, like I don't even have to wait for that to go away, right? Like I can love, <laughs> I can love my own self-hatred. I can hold that in loving awareness, right? The inner critic, I can hold that in loving awareness. Like it, there, there's no ideal state of perfection that I have to wait for to be in love in this very moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're talking about practices. What practices support you today? Yeah. So mantra has been a staple of my practice since the beginning. In my time at Ramdas's house, I had this uh, makeshift temple that I built at the edge of the property out of tarps. And I did that so that I could have my harmonium down there and I could just chant at any point in time and not disturb anyone. I chanted in the house plenty, but I also wanted a private area. And at that point in time, I was. I was chanting easily, hours a day. Like When I wasn't doing duties around the house, uh, I was very committed to my chanting practice. Uh, just reciting mantras, singing mantras, and... Uh, Essentially, these Sanskrit mantras are what are known as the holy names. So this love that we're talking about and that uh, I believe your audience is familiar with, right? This spiritual truth that is underlies everything. Uh, more or less, these holy names, these mantras are different names of that ultimate reality, right? So they're, they're sonic representations of it. So the idea is... By chanting them, uh, we are tuning ourselves to that in some way, and we're giving ourselves a reminder of it. And so for me, that's really my core practice is that I remind myself of God uh, every moment that I can. And because God is everywhere, uh, the, the more that I remind myself that that too is God, that too is God, that thought is God, this sensation is God, oh, that resistance, that's also God. 
then that, that returns me to a, a state of love. Um, so that's my, more or less, that's my core practice uh, in terms of practices that I do with others, right? The, the act of chanting kirtan, call and response chanting to music is something that we can do as a group where essentially we, we help each other to remember and to open our heart through chanting th these sacred phrases. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So kirtan is like a, a practice that helps align you to that remembrance of, of the divine. Do you have a favorite chant? I know you're a musician and you've, you've made so many beautiful songs and, but is there just like a simple chant that you recite to yourself either out loud or non-verbally? <laughs> uh, well, so in terms of simple, uh, you know, the, so my name, Sitaram Das, uh, means servant of Sita Ram. Ram Das's name means servant of Ram. It all just means servant of God. And these names, my name came from Ram Das, but essentially they serve as reminders for how to show up in the world. But I mean, I never asked the exact reason why Ram Das gave me this particular name, but uh, what he knew is that um, at that point in time, you know, Sita Ram, and it's still to this day, was really my favorite mantra to sing, recite. And um, so when I received that name, it, it felt like home. And uh, that's still true, right? I still love chanting the, the sound of Sita Ram. Um, Sita is said to be the feminine aspect of the divine, the goddess, and Ram is the, the masculine aspect. Um, another way to look at it is the form and formlessness. And Sita Ram is said to be not separate, right? We're talking about one being. Um, mm. So that's uh, that's a simple mantra that has a deep place in my heart, yeah. That's beautiful. Masculine and the feminine, the, the oneness of, of, the, of the God energy, yeah. yes? Um, I think it's so beautiful that, that Ram Das gave you that name. Um, did you ever look up um, the meaning, not the, the religious meaning, but like if you're named Sita Ram, like this is what they say about you? Oh, <laughs> like, uh, uh, no, I, I've never looked up, I've never looked that up. So I did. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and I thought it was really interesting because just from, from what I know about you, um, it seemed like it really fit, like someone who's very musical and someone who's super creative and really devoted to the path oh. and, um, you know, emotionally aware. And uh, um, I, I found it an interesting uh, description of that. So maybe I'll send that to you if you're curious, sure. but it's kind of it's kind of fun to see that. Um, and I heard you, I can't remember who you were speaking to. It was another podcast that you were on. But I, I heard you talking about how um, Ram Dass um, gave you the name. And he's like thinking about it, you know. And uh, I'm just wondering like what he was experiencing in that moment. Like what did he see uh, of you? Um, because I think he was right. Mm. I think he was right. Yeah. Well, and going back to... Uh, so one, thank you. That's that's sweet. Um, going back to you know Ramdas's core view and stance that uh, it's all a guru. I 
my sense is that Ramdas really didn't feel like he was giving people names. He was the messenger from Maharaji, mm. right? Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> I, I still don't know what that means in terms of his internal, right? Like how he's perceiving that. Because my own relationship with Maharaji is that even if I creatively come up with something and it seems like it's coming from my own mind, uh, I still know where right. it's really coming from. Um, so I don't know exactly, you know, what his internal stance was, but I, that was the sense I had was that it was coming from Ramdas, which was important because he was my teacher, but also that it was connecting me to, to Maharaji, right? It, the, the, the name is yeah. connected to both. And that's deeply important to me on, on a personal level. Yeah. Was it Ramdas who said, God, guru, self, all one? I know that that's a message that's, that's, I think it gets passed down, but... So that was first said by uh, Ramana Maharshi, uh, okay. yeah, famous Indian saint from the last century. But uh, Ramdas echoed those words quite a bit. And that more or less, especially when we're talking about the path of Guru Kripa, in terms of seeing it all as grace and having the Guru really be our primary doorway into God, um, that phrase, yeah. God, Guru, and Self are one, is really captures the essence of, of what that path really means. Yeah. I know Ramdas didn't um, want to be called a guru, um, but I feel like he um, he embodied a similar presence for for so many. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah. I, I think that's undeniably true. He did. Um, it was important to him for various reasons. Uh, he knew what his job was. I mean, he, he was a messenger for Maharaji. He pointed people mm -hmm. towards Maharaji. Um, and people would have big experiences around him. And I think uh, at certain stages on his path, I think it was really important for him to make sure that people knew that that wasn't from him, but it was from Maharaji. Um, mm -hmm. Towards the end of his life, the difference between the two of them um, starts to get a lot softer, right? And a little bit more mm -hmm. intangible. It just, he, it, another way you could say it is he really was on a path of melting into his guru. Um, but because he loved Maharaji so much too, like he, I mean, that's, that's what he had to share. And it was in that sharing and that pointing to Maharaji that is also a part of his process of dissolving into that. But at this point in time, because I don't have Ramdas around to argue with me, um, <laughs> I don't have to hold any difference in my heart between the two of them. I just... When I think about Maharaji, when I hold Ramdas's face in my mind and look in his eyes, it's it's the same presence that that I feel and that mm -hmm. they connect me to. So, yeah. yeah, they open the they open the doorway within. Yeah. Uh, and and what a beautiful remembering that is. I think we we hold that gratitude in our hearts forever. Yeah. Um, I feel like. 
So the one time that I met Ram Dass, it was at a Wayne Dyer conference in 2007 in Maui. And I was so excited to be there. And I knew a little bit about Ram Dass to know that he was important. But I didn't know um, enough to feel like I should be taking up his time, which is really interesting because uh, he they brought him on stage. He's in his wheelchair, right? So they had to carry him up because they didn't have a ramp. And I didn't know a lot about him at the time other than he was important. Like, I already had this sort of respect for him. And they brought him up, and he has aphasia, right? So he has this slow speech. And I was mesmerized. And, like, he was so funny. And he's telling these stories about, you know, his experiences with psychedelics. And it's this old man in a wheelchair. And he was mesmerizing. And I was just – I felt – um, I felt so drawn to, I mean, he was really charismatic yeah. too. Like, and when you listen to his old talks, like he was an amazing orator. And I think that to have <laughs> not been able to speak in that way, cause that was such a gift. I think that would have been, that would have been really hard for me. It'd been really hard to like have this gift of speaking and now you have to move into a new way. But so after his talk, they bring him down and there's this little break in between the conference and a few people go up to him, you know, maybe half a dozen people <clears throat> and they're right up next to him and he's smiling. And like, I come maybe 10 feet from him because I'm like, well, I don't really know a lot about him. I don't want to take up his time, but I'm just drawn to him. And I stand there and I'm looking at him and he catches my eye and it's it's such a silly little story, but it stayed with me forever. He caught my eye, and it's like, in that instant, I knew he understood exactly what I was feeling, why I was standing where I was, and that it was all okay. It was all, like, I didn't need to push myself to move forward. I didn't need to back away. Things didn't need to be any different than they were. He was sending me love right where I was. Mm. And it's like this feeling that I had from him, I think is maybe why he's still in my heart. And then when I started learning about, of course, I started listening to all his talks after that. Um, when I learned about Maharaji and that experience of, of grace, it felt so similar. And I'm like, maybe that's, maybe, maybe that seed got planted in me, uh, in me then. And it's still in there. And it's so weird because, um, I mean, we worship the intellect, don't we? And and Wayne Dyer got to my heart through his words, you know, and it goes all through this and they're like, oh, yes, okay, I feel that, right? But it's like Ramdas for me bypassed all of that. Mm. Like as wonderful of a speaker he was, it's like he transcended words and reached me someplace deeper that has never mm. left me. And somehow I ended up in his home and it all just felt, it just felt right. Like, of course. Yeah. That's my Ram Dass story. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think, this is another thing I can say. I, it's, it's so easy to be disappointed by our heroes when we meet them in person. And it's because uh, we're all human and it's possible for people to have this deep 
craft, this deep ability to transmit some deep creativity, right? Some wisdom or whatever it is. And uh, for them to also just be kind of crappy in other ways or to just fall short, at least of our expectations that we place on them. And I just, you know, like, yeah, Ramdas was a human uh, and I lived with him, you know, for a few years, which means whatever projections that I had in the beginning had to fall away at some point. Right. Mm -hmm. But I also, it just, it's real. Like he really like, this loving awareness that we're talking about, this presence that you felt from him in that moment, I don't know how else to explain it. That was his baseline. Like, yeah, I saw him get angry and grumpy and I saw him struggle with dependency at sometimes, right? Through his process of losing more and more abilities. I saw him struggle sometimes and just all the normal human stuff that you would expect. But the, the difference is that that presence that really was his baseline like that that was just the the base and it just that really settled in for me that this isn't just an idea and it's not just some experience that i can get a glimpse at you know in some transpersonal moment or whatever it is some ecstatic moment but this really is real this is really what's going on and and I don't, what a gift that, that he embodied that, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. what a gift. His humanness is what brought us in because we can see a little bit of ourselves mm -hmm. in that. Um, I have a couple of quotes from you here. Um, one I pulled from your website, and it says, What makes Ram Dass's life truly remarkable is the way he showed us what is possible when we fully honor our human hearts. Ram Dass died as a human being, just like you and me. He never once pretended to be anything other than human. He lived and died in a way that shows that spiritual liberation is found not despite our humanity, but because of yeah. it. To me, his deepest teaching is that loving awareness is truly accessible to us all. It is our birthright. Yeah. 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 It was another one of his gifts, right? Is that not only did he embody that, but because he really led with his humanity in his teaching and his talks, um, there's just this core message that, yeah, even me too, right? That this really, yeah, it's special because it's the best thing going on, right? I mean, once we get a taste of love, that's what we want. But it's also not special in that this is just here. This is just really here, moment to moment. And we don't, we don't have to be a superhero to rest in this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember him talking about um, he was always trying to escape his humanity in the early days. He was trying to transcend that. He was trying to stay high. And he would always come back down again. Um, I can't think of who it was that said it to him now, but was like, Ramdas, you're here. Why don't you try taking the curriculum? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, it's interesting. I was just saying this to someone earlier today. You know, even my ideal of what perfection even means in my mind, uh, 10 years ago it was different than it was five years ago, which is different than it is now, right? Even, even how I conceive of what perfection even means has changed over time, right? So I don't even, like, I, I can't even trust my own, like, whatever I think of as perfection. It's just an idea that I have, right? There could be all sorts of family stuff, cultural conditioning, like, whatever it is that could be wrapped in that. Um, and so just this idea that So sometimes we think of love as like this soft blanket that we use to cover up experience, right? I mean, sometimes we have this working model of love like that, but in reality, it's, it's really the deepest allowance, right? Grief, anger, whatever it is I'm experiencing, can I, can I really just allow that to be there? Can I really just like not have to push away any of it? Right. And again, that's, that's both a practice. That's something that I can do. It, it's also, it's really a practice, this practice of gentleness and allowance and a full honoring that if I'm not pushing away any of it, that means I'm allowing myself to be deeply human. Right. It, it has mm -hmm. to be. And so the fullness of love has to be a full honoring of this incarnation. Yeah. And then you're not at war with yourself yeah. and then you're not at war with anyone or anything around you. You make yeah. space for all yeah. of it. The good things, the really hard things, the really painful yeah. things, instead of chasing and striving and pushing away and resisting, you can finally yeah. rest in what yeah. is. Yeah, that's right. Just letting go of resistance and when we're not struggling, it, it actually gives us more space to be in touch with what our core values are, right? There's this idea mm. that I've had for much of my life, and it, it seems to be cultural, that uh, this inner critic, this judge, uh, that this tension, that basically I need to do that, otherwise uh, I'm going to be some complete derelict, Right? I'm going to start, start robbing stores, start like whatever it is. My life's going to fall apart, right? That I, I need to be holding it together somehow. Um, but the other thing that I've learned through this practice of gentleness is that actually my deepest desire is that I want to treat people with compassion and I want to treat myself with compassion, which means that I want to keep my house decently clean. I want to make sure I'm taking care of myself, right? Like, this is just natural. Like I, this is actually what I want. And if I'm not fighting with everything all the time, I have more space to be in touch with that, right? I can actually actualize these values uh, in a more meaningful way. So, and that's, that's the piece where we don't have to know all this at once, right? It's, it's more just the more that we practice, the more that we learn that it's safe, that reality is safe, that our being that our being is safe and that we can trust ourselves. Yeah. That's so key. And um, 
that was not a concept that was introduced to me until later in life. Yeah. I wasn't raised with the idea that I could trust myself. Right. In fact, I think we very strongly get the opposite messages. I have two little kids and I'm trying to approach it a little bit differently and tell them that, you know, you have an inner guidance system and listen to how your body feels and what feels right to you. And that, um, you know, that you can trust in, in who you are and what you feel. And that's real for you. And don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. Um, but boy, do I wish that culturally we we could be starting from a different base point where um, we drop this idea of original sin and that like there's something wrong with us from the very beginning and you can't be trusted and you have to fight against that because then um, how can you ever be at peace? Yeah. Like you can be, you can express positivity you can express mm -hmm. kindness but is that being expressed to yourself yeah. and i think that we see a lot of examples of people who are very friendly um but how do they feel on the inside and and how do they talk to themselves and there is that 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 war within the the best thing that i've found for that is what we talked about is that that practice of loving mm -hmm. awareness, loving all of it, loving the part of me that wishes things could be yeah. different, loving the part of me that is just sitting here observing the moment, um, all of it. Um, it's just really to embrace, embrace it. Because anytime we're trying to push something away, there's always going to be struggle. And I don't want to live that yeah. way um for me one of the things that community and spiritual practice does is it just reminds mm -hmm. me it realigns that oh yes right like there's there's space for all of it um i do want to talk about the sacred community project yeah. so you are the director of the sacred community project Tell us what it is and what you're doing there. Sure. So I'll first say, because we've been talking a lot about Ramdas, is that a few months before he died, he flew to Taos, New Mexico for the opening of the new Hanuman temple that they had built there. And, um, and without getting much into the mythology of all that, but it was a temple that Ramdas had initially started and, and Hanuman is a central figure of, of our lineage. And he hadn't flown from Maui in 15 years, but this was such an important thing for him, like just finishing this life's work that he got on a plane and went. And so I went there and I hadn't, I wasn't living on island with him at that point in time. Um, so I went so that I could see him and be there and be with everyone. And uh, it was incredible. But uh, on the flight home, um, I wrote the first words that ended up being the central to the founding document of the Sacred Community Project, which is that it's an inner spiritual collective. Um, and really, it wasn't just from being in Ramdas's presence, but it was, I mean, it was there in like, 
community, my community, like all the people, like people that came out because they knew Ramdas was coming were all people that I loved. And it was just, it wasn't just about the prayers and the temple and, but it was also just being with everyone in it. Being with satsang, with spiritual community is such a deep practice. And so uh, that experience is really the, the first seed that it grew out of. And so what the Sacred Community Project is, is it's an inner spiritual collective that works to lower the barriers of access to contemplative and devotional practices. And we do this through uh, free donation-based and low-cost offerings. Um, so anything that I create uh, more or less exists as a fundraiser for Sacred Community Project. Uh, books, music, all of that. Um, uh, the retreat that we have coming up, um, which is in Vancouver, British Columbia, nearby you, uh, this summer, uh, the week of July 28th, um, is a sliding scale retreat where we've really worked hard to lower the costs, where a significant percentage of the people there are there on scholarship or partial scholarship. Um, these are the kind of things that the Sacred Community Project engages as in a real strong way. Um, online, through one-on-one -on -one spiritual support, through group spiritual support, um, and then we do a lot of outreach to the, the prison system. And the core idea is both sacred community as uh, an ideal, right? A vision for the world. What would it look like if we treated each other as if we were all sacred community? Um, and also just uh, the true reality, which is that we are, right? Which is that we are. And that we can make that a practice to treat each other that way. And so that means... Uh, there's a sense of trust built in that um, people who have the resources will donate that money if they feel inspired. Um, and then people who don't uh, can still get the, the resources that they need, whether it's through spiritual teachings or one-on-one -on -one spiritual support. And so that's the, the, the core of what a Sacred Community Project is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's It's what would the world be like if we treated everyone as sacred community? Yeah. yeah. Excludes no one. Yeah. And the, the prison work that we engage in, uh, it, it's not the only thing we do or even the majority, but it is a really big piece. And I think that it's really deeply indicative of a group of people that we do not treat uh, as community, right? I mean, when, when we think about people mm -hmm. that we kind of turn a blind eye to, we're talking about an entire population of people in the United States that uh, not only have we separated in these confined spaces, but, but generally put them so they're completely out of mind, right? They're often in rural mm -hmm. areas. They're, they're often housed places, incarcerated places where we don't even have to think about them. We can forget that that entire groups of people exist. Um, mm -hmm. And to me, because I want to embody loving awareness in my life in the deepest sense possible, that means that I, uh, if, if, there's, if there's anyone that I'm not treating as sacred community, that's, that's a sign of my own being's work to do, right? I, I don't think, mm -hmm. 
I don't think that we can separate the systemic from the personal. And that's, that's one of our core foundational statements of Sacred Community Project is it's all interconnected. So uh, as long as all these systemic issues exist, whether we're talking about classism or racism or the prison industrial complex, um, that means that I'm programmed by these systems. It means they exist within me and um, I can't pretend that I'm separate from it. And so me being whole on a personal level means interfacing with these systems in, in some way. Um, and so that's, that's another core central tenet of this is that uh, there's no separation, right? On, on every level. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big undertaking. And a good reminder for all of us that like, if you're, if you're having trouble loving someone or a group of people, that that's where your work is, right? That shows you that there's, there's something there inside of you um, to open. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a big undertaking, but it's also um, like Sacred Community Project isn't a big organization. Um, and we're really just doing our own small part, right? And I think that there's also something mm -hmm. in that, which is that um, I personally can't fix all the problems of the world, right? It's not possible. Um, but I can find uh, I can find the, the parts that are that are there for me to engage with, right? And just do my own small part and trust that that's a part of my own path of awakening. And, um, and really, uh, Sacred Community Project, I think, embodies that piece too, which is that um, the, the small things sometimes matter just as much as the big things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And part of what you're doing in the prison system, are you bringing Kirtan practices when you visit? Yeah. So uh, over the pandemic, we largely have been engaging with letter writing and providing resources. Mm -hmm. And we have a team of volunteers that engages uh, doing spiritual pen pal uh, with incarcerated individuals. Um, but before that, uh, we were going into prisons and, and singing Kirtan. And then uh, this summer, actually, for the upcoming Kirtan tour that I have before the retreat, uh, we will be going into two different prisons, um, San Quentin, uh, which is in the San Francisco area, and then as well as uh, an Oregon prison as well. And so that's, uh, that's built into the, the Kirtan tour as a central piece of Right? If, we're, if we're going up and singing Kirtan in places so that we can sing with community, um, we don't only mm -hmm. want to sing at yoga studios and the normal places, but also to make sure that we're really honoring the, the full expression of what community means. Yeah. I got another question for yeah. you. So, um, so when we were in Hawaii, we, um, my kids joined us and we got to um, experience uh, Kirtan on the Hanuman Maui. And uh, loved it. My kids loved it. It was so cute. They were chanting after that. Um, so I love that. But I'm like, everybody knows how to do this. I'm like, how did you learn? Like, how did you learn to play the harmonium? How did you learn the chants? Like, what was your introduction to that? Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll, I'll tell a short story. It's not a long story. Um, I, I grew up playing music. When I was in third grade, 
uh, I told my mom that I wanted to grow my hair long so I could be a rock star. And <laughs> she decided that uh, maybe that rather than me changing my hairstyle, she would get me uh, music lessons. And I said I wanted to play guitar. She, she tried to push piano, but I was like, no, I want to play guitar. And so from a pretty young age, I played music. Uh, when I was in high school and dealing with all the types of sufferings and mental health things that I think a lot of teenagers deal with, uh, music was a really big salve and escape. I mean, I would just go in my room and play guitar for hours. Um, but it fell away at some point uh, when I was in my early 20s. And I was really invested in my spiritual path. And I was at that point in time meditating very ardently. And so I didn't have a lot of room for other things like playing guitar. And it's interesting. I saw these two uh, psychics. And actually, this was in Seattle. Uh, one was at uh, East West Books. And I, I went and, and saw this person. And, and the whole time, I wasn't sure how I felt about him. It kind of seemed like he was doing some cold reading or I just like, I just wasn't sure. But I went up and talked to him at the end and uh, I asked some question and he said, hold on, I'm getting that. He started listing a few things. I don't even remember what he said, but he said this at the end, almost word for word. He said, oh yeah, and I'm hearing one more thing. I'm hearing you need to be more creative and music. I'm, I'm getting you need to play music. I thought, okay. So I thought about that and I tried playing my guitar some and, you know, it was just an effort. And then I went and I saw this other psychic and it was on Capitol Hill at some church. I don't, you might know what it is. It was, uh, they had these big crystals and it full of pictures of different ascended masters. It was like that kind of school of thought. And it was there on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. And the person was doing these readings where before you walk in, you drew a number out of a bowl and it was like a number one through a hundred. And then you held it up to your solar plexus and you put it in another box. And then, so you knew what your number was, but the, the person up on the stage didn't. And so you're there in this audience and there's a lot of people there and the person is just on the stage and pulling up numbers and then giving readings. So this person draws my number and she says, she says a few things that I, I now don't remember, but it was almost exactly the same how it happened at the end. It was so interesting. She was almost done and she said, wait, I'm also getting that this person, they need to be more creative and, and music. I'm hearing that they need to be playing music. And I just remember it was like every hair of my, like stood up, I was like, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> and it was maybe a month after that, maybe two months after that, that I saw Krishnadas for the first time. Um, mm. I didn't know much about Kirtan as a practice. I heard his music in a yoga studio and I just wanted to go. Um, I was really just drawn to his voice. And that, I can't even explain what happened. I just, it was like I was flying the whole time. And at, a couple of days later, I told my friend, I said, I think I need to buy a harmonium, which is the instrument that Krishnas plays and is a, a common instrument for Kirtan. And my friend said, I think you need to buy one too. And he's not this kind of person. And he said, and I will loan you the money to buy one. 
And so he did. He loaned me the money and I, I, I bought the harmonium. And then that, I just became obsessed. And I, I, all the energy I was putting towards meditating at that time, it just transferred. And um, how I learned the first chance uh, was at that point in time, there wasn't a lot of online tutorials. There wasn't like music books or things like there are now. So I would just listen to Krishnadas chants and I would listen and I would try and figure out what he was playing and I would play it and I would sing. And even though I had a music background, I had no vocal training and uh, I was not a, a good singer. Uh, I, I didn't necessarily know how to sing in key. I was sometimes flat, or, but uh, a lot of passion. And I just sang and uh, that quickly became like like an obsession. It wasn't a practice. It was an obsession. I was obsessively <laughs> chanting. And then along the way, any time I could find someone that was willing to sit down with me and teach me something, uh, I would do that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, at Ramdas's house, obviously I had access to a lot of people that would come through and could teach me chants or give me advice or this and that. And, um, and Dasima was really the first one to push me to lead chanting up, up until that point, moving in there, uh, it had been entirely a personal practice. Um, but she would push me to chant with people in the living room when guests would come. And uh, I was pretty shy with those things. Like the, the first time I chanted with people, um, it was like I was just flooded with anxiety. It was like clinging to the name, like keeping my mind focused on the name. It was like a lifeboat, right? Just to save me from my just like just drenching anxiety. Um, so there was also something there for me too in terms of learning to be comfortable in front of groups of people and, and, and things like that. Um, so uh, it was an organic process. Uh, I really just learned through other people teaching me things here or there. Um, but you know, nowadays mm -hmm. there's all sorts of tutorials, uh, classes you can take online, books you can get. Um, it's really possible for anyone to learn simple chants uh, without any type of musical experience. I mean, really. Yeah. So when so when new caretakers would come to Maui, are you guys like teaching them? They just sort of pick it up on their own, like, because everybody seems to know how to do it. <laughs> I'm like, what's the secret sauce? You guys got an online like? What are you <laughs> doing here? <laughs> uh huh. Uh, well. I don't know what that is. Ramdas seems to seem to attract uh, a lot of creative people. Um, not everyone who came through the house ended up being musicians, um, but I guess you know. Here, here's the truth of it: is chanting is a really big practice, right? And so. Um, it's not necessarily like, it's not gonna be everyone's path to be some great musician or to, you know, be comfortable leading Kirtan in groups or whatever. But um, if you do something as a daily practice, uh, you're gonna develop uh, a decently nice voice. You're gonna learn how to sing in key just through doing it over time, right? You're gonna be able to play mm -hmm. some simple things. And uh, this is a core practice of our tradition. Um, and so, we just you you pick it up just from being in the house i mean we you know nowadays they, they yeah. chant every day there right yeah mm. yeah 
That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that in a way that we can all understand. Um, and I think that, you know, you make beautiful music and many of you do, but it isn't even about having the beautiful right. voice, right? It's, it's about aligning to that energy and participating in it. And I think at the same time, you're, you're projecting that in a way that, um, is communal. And, uh, so even, even coming in, knowing almost nothing about Kirtan, like I just, I felt it, you know, and I think my kids felt it too. Now, before I let you go, I cannot let you leave without talking about your writing. Um, you published a book called From and For God. I have another quote here from that. And um, again, about Ram Dass, this one. It says, Ram Dass has completely changed the way I think, the way I relate to my experiences, how I fill my time, where I place my value. My life can never be the same because of one man. I might get caught up in mundane matters and avoid my daily practices, but his influence is always present as a constant backdrop. It touches every single aspect of my life, and there are no words to describe the kind of gratitude that comes from that. None. I love how you put your heart into this so much, and it's another way that we receive it through music, receive it through the words, receive it through your presence. Um, what what made you want to write this book? Where did this come from? And I also heard you have a new book coming out in the fall. Is that right? Yeah, I have a, <laughs> I have a couple of projects that are being juggled. Um, <laughs> so that book was uh, very much an organic process. I um, When I was at Ramdas's specifically, you know, before that I, I studied poetry and uh, writing was both a deeply important creative act and also became a, a spiritual practice for me in terms of there's something about uncovering in the moment what is the deepest truth that I can put into words, right? And obviously the ineffable can't fully be captured in words, but there's something about the act of trying, right? That it's, it's, it's like an alignment with truth. And through the, the process of, of writing, especially in verse, poetry, and later, um, it started to change forms into more essay of a format. Um, but it was really central spiritual practice uh, that I would do uh, in my time on Maui and, and before and after. Um, and so I had these collection of writings and for the longest time they were just up on my blog. And, uh, and a lot of time and effort went into them. I, I put a, a lot of care. I mean, I just, I really cared a lot about crafting them and forming them and shaping them and editing them and coming back and and uh, over time various members of the satsang the spiritual community would read my writings and um, and I would get uh, positive feedback from people it's not like I was ever really widely read they were just there on my blog but in terms of my core community and people whose opinions I valued uh, I, I got positive feedback from people and over time, a lot of people would say things like, I wish that I had your writings in book form. And, um, mm. and at some point in time, just through the process again of me plumbing the own depths of, of what feels true in the moment, uh, I realized that that was important for me too. And 
there's something I think that all artists can relate to where um, sometimes we can block ourselves because we don't trust our own egos and our motivations and like what is the real reason I want to do this and um, but in that moment I just didn't care I mean I just I just knew that for whatever reason even if I don't understand even if I have all sorts of other motivations right to achieve appreciation or love from other people like whatever it is but that there was something that felt true about that desire to put them in book form and um, and that I wanted to, to honor that, that, that truth. And so uh, I started the process of putting those in, in book form and uh, that was offered, uh, it's both a fundraiser for SCP but also half the funds go to Hanuman Maui. And, um, and there was something beautiful in it, just the humility of like asking various people that I had like loose connections to if they would read it to see if they would offer endorsements Right? I mean, there, there, there was a lot about that that um, uh, was a, a, kind of a deep process for me. And so th that's the story of that book. It's, it's really a simple collection of writings that a lot of time and energy went into. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, now I have two book projects I'm working on, but one of them isn't ready to be announced but the one that is is called uh, loving awareness awakening the heart mind through the path of grace and um, it is a book that is about the path of loving awareness and um, I'm the lead editor on it and also the, the lead author but it's pulling in a lot of other voices um, from the community to create this collective offering that um, can serve multiple purposes for Sacred Community Project in terms of one being an offering that uh, I deeply believe in uh, that can help raise money for things, um, but also something that can kind of express our core stance of like the framework that Sacred Community Project lives in, in terms of the spiritual support we offer, all those things. And uh, it can serve as part of the training manual for volunteers coming in. It's also something that we can send uh, to people in prisons and uh, other people who might have obstacles to be able to purchase a book. It's something that we can provide to people uh, for free. Um, and so that's that's the big project right now that I'm, I'm putting a lot of energy into. Yeah. Sounds great. I look forward to reading that one. So what's the best way for people to reach you, see what's going on, and offer support? Yeah. Uh, Thank you for asking. Uh, the, really, at this point in time, uh, all of my deepest work is going into the Sacred Community Project. So uh, if people go to sacredcommunityproject.org, they can learn about the organization. They'll also have a place there where they can see all of my offerings and check those out. Um, Sacred Community Project, uh, it's, it's under the fiscal sponsorship of Hanuman Maui actually so we're not a standalone nonprofit, uh, but we're under their umbrella and so uh, we can take tax-deductible donations and uh, we need it and so if anyone feels inspired uh, and wants to offer a contribution uh, they can do so at that website and also if anyone feels called and would like any uh, support uh, they can also reach out um, and that's all at sacredcommunityproject.org and then of course there's my own personal website sitaramdas.com yeah. Okay. 
So sacredcommunityproject.org, go check it out, offer support if you're in a position to do so. Um, Sitaram, thank you so much for your life of service, for sharing your heart and your words and your story with me and with everyone who's going to be listening to this podcast today. Um, it's really been a joy just to get to spend this time together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for having me. For all our listeners, thank you for following Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life and telling your friends about it. To learn more about this podcast and see everything I'm up to these days, come on over to NadiaDelacruz.com and drop me a message. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Namaste. To learn more about this podcast, see upcoming events, or book a private reading, you can visit my website at NadiaDelacruz.com. We have a monthly spiritual discussion group, and I would love for you to join us. You can also get the link to my YouTube channel with full video episodes and live recordings from the Wayne Dyer Wisdom community. If you enjoyed this show, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you soon. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation Podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.